Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, I am joined to discuss the week and some of the most interesting events in the investment trust sector and in the markets by Max King, a former fund manager, latterly at Investec Asset Management, who now is probably best known as a regular columnist in the Money Week periodical, as, as well as contributing elsewhere. And not least, I should say, to the annual Investment Trust Handbook, which is uh, coming out next week or in 10 days time. You should be able to get a copy of that, a hard back copy of the handbook, or you could look at our possibility of our ebook downloads. Max has made, a, a as usual, very wise contribution to the handbook, reviewing the uh, as it was at the deadline day, which is the end of October, just as the markets began to turn around. Later on, I'll also be talking to uh, Ben Rogoff, the manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust, a widely followed trust, who has quite a lot of interesting things to say, particularly about the FANG stocks, as was, and about where we might be going with the technology sector, which has borne the brunt of the sell-off this year. But before we get to all that, we're going to have a quick update on the markets and the investment trust sector. Last time we spoke, Max, was roughly almost exactly three months ago. And it's quite interesting to look at what's happened since then, which is basically on many metrics, we're pretty much where we were back then, despite all the dramas we've had since the interest rate rises from the Federal Reserve and other central banks, and a little political drama in the UK, which hadn't played out when we spoke last time. You were trying to strike a fairly confident tone in in, uh, difficult times. So where do you think we are now in terms of the markets over the course of this year as we head up towards the end of the year? Well, markets have rallied to the fury of all the bears. The S&P 500 is, is, I think, up about 14%, comfortably over 4,000. The FTSE 100 is actually up on the year, though importantly, not the FTSE 250 or the small caps. Bond yields come off sharply. The 10-year US bond is down from 4.5% to 3.5%. The gilt yields think are down to below 3%. And yet all the pundits are furious because they say it's, it's too soon. The market is wrong. You know, it's too early for the market to bounce. And they're, they're still predicting another sell-off in the market in the US to make new lows early next year. But of course, I think that's pretty likely to be nonsense. And, and the reason is, is that what they're saying is that um, a recession is coming. Earnings will take a further dip and uh, investors will panic out and sell to the vulture funds at market lows enabling all the vulture investors to pile in and make fortune at their expense. But, you know, the human race tends to learn a little bit as it goes along. And I think investors have learned not to panic out in market upsets, but to sit tight. And that's what's happening now. So the bear market has fizzled out. But the corollary of that is we're probably going to have a fizzling bull market, which means that the market uh, uh, is probably not going to do very much for the next six months. It might actually go up and then come back in the spring, but it's not going to have the downside and probably won't have much of an upside either. But it still makes next year quite a good year for equities, I think. Well, that's a new term for me, a fizzling bull market. I like it. That one could catch on, yeah. I'm not sure I agree with you as a regular readers of mine will know. I have been rather more gloomy than you. But as you say, since we spoke last, which was about three months ago, we have seen the markets rally. Um, as um, I thought they would, I hasten to add. Though, as um, you very correctly said, you thought they would, indeed. My, um, I, I plagiarised my views from Eddie Ardeni, who I find to be a very wise old bird when it comes to markets. 
Well, I, I'm a great believer in wise old birds, and I have some wise old birds I follow too. But as I said, we're basically, since we last spoke, we're back to where we were more or less. There's been one or two minor changes, you say. The UK has recovered from its extraordinary mess that uh, the trust Quateng duo made of uh, trying to be in charge of the government. Uh, you said well, Unfortunately, they, they collided with a liability-driven investment fiasco where people who are supposed to be avoiding risk piled on huge amounts of leveraged risk in the bond market, and it all went spectacularly wrong. So I think the government of the time blundered on while this disaster was unfolding. I don't think um, we've seen the last of that disaster. I don't think the numbers have come out, and uh, um, people are just sort of hoping that it will all go away. But you know, large amounts of money have been lost, irredeemably lost, for those pension funds. And I think a lot of people are going to get some fairly unpleasant shocks. Indeed. So there are still some issues uh, bubbling away beneath the surface, or fizzling away, perhaps to use your phrase. <laughs> In terms of investment trust, this week we had a couple of down days followed by a couple of up days. And today we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. We just had the US latest US uh, employment numbers, and they seem to be slightly stronger than the market from all its uh, lack of wisdom was, was predicting. So we can't read much into that. And the average discount on investment trust is still hovering around uh, 11%, which is roughly where it was when we spoke three months ago. But we've seen some continued uh, star rotation, some winners and losers. What are your thoughts? What have you been picking up on in terms of uh, investment trusts and individual performance before we look at some specific stocks? Well, I tend to follow the little winter flood measure of investment trust discounts, and they say it's come down from a peak of just over 15 to 13%. So discounts have narrowed, but they're still really for the sector at crisis level, the sort of level which actually uh, new issuances ground to a complete halt. Further issuance of existing, existing trusts is also ground to a halt. And there are some discounts out there still in a 40% plus, and people are seriously concerned. And there's been a very good piece of research by Kepler, uh, Billy Heathcote Amory, on the investment trusts and saying what's happened to investment trusts, discounts in the last year. And the results are very surprising. It seems that most liquid trusts have seen their discounts widen the most. The trusts that performed really well last year have seen them widen dramatically. The ones with a good underlying performance this year have seen their discounts widen dramatically. It sort of doesn't make an awful lot of sense. And Billy says that there are lessons to be learned, which is, you know, don't run your winners too far. But it does seem strange that people are actually selling the, the larger trusts, not the less liquid ones, and that they're selling the ones that are doing well, basically because they don't believe in the numbers, which seems strange to me. Yeah. Well, the level of discounts, as you say, is is very wide. So my recent experience, with the exception of the pandemic, double-digit discount across the universe. But of course, a big part of that has been the fact that uh, many alternative asset trusts, which have previously been trading at a premium, many of them, majority of them even, uh, they're now most of them trading at a discount because of uh, a couple of specific things, I guess you'd say, the, the increase in bond yields. On the one hand, higher interest rates are not positive for property companies or for a lot of companies which have long life assets. And then we've had the specific issues around the renewable energy sector to do with the government windfall tax and so on. The sector, the whole corporate sector is under sustained attack from the government, not just from the higher corporation tax, but for the tax on energy, on renewable energy. And I think I'd like to think the discount now of investment trusts presents a great buying opportunity. But there is that niggling doubt at the back of my mind that the market is telling us something. And it's telling us something that there is a cross-party unity in attacking the private sector, in attacking savings and investment, and that maybe the tax advantages of investment trusts and of pension funds aren't safe. And that has to be a worry. And if that's the case, 
then it's not just investment in UK companies that you want to worry about. It's investment in any UK vehicle is a potential worry because it, it could become the target for, for want of a better word, I shall call the government. <laughs> Indeed. And this is, of course, the kind of thing that does happen when you get yourself in a situation where you've maxed out on the credit card, as the government has done. Well, uh, the government hasn't maxed out on the credit card. I think they're basically become slaves to the Treasury and the so-called Chancellor is little more than a nodding donkey to the Treasury mandarins. And I don't think the Treasury mandarins have any regard for the private sector, for savings, for investment, for growth. And the nodding donkey just goes along with whatever they suggest. And if that suggestion is, let's attack pension funds, great. Uh, let's attack ISAs, great. Let's attack investment trusts, great. You know, maybe the market is telling us that there is a worry about that. But there are no commitments that these, all these privileges we've got so used to over the last 30 years will be there forever. Indeed not, and that will have an impact. The point I was making there was if you look at the projections of how much money they have to borrow and so on, they're going to raid anything which they can find has got a ready source of revenue, and that includes a windfall tax on the uh, renewable energy companies. It also includes uh, higher corporation taxes, you say, and so on. And Particularly when the tax increases they've announced will not raise anything like the amounts of money they um, penciled in. It's not the first round that you worry about. It's the second and third round when they come back saying we haven't raised as much money as we hoped. We've got to raise some more. Well, last time we spoke, <laughs> in your inimitable way, Max, you talked about the donkeys who are in charge of the Bank of England. And you don't seem to be very impressed by the government either. And yet you're quite positive on the UK market. This is a spending point that makes the point that, of course, markets aren't necessarily about politics or about... I'm actually quite cautious about the UK market, although it's undeniably cheap. I think it's cheap for a reason. You know, the Russian market was very cheap a year ago. And that was for a bloody good reason. So I worry the UK market is cheap for a reason. I prefer the reassuringly expensive US market. And I think actually there's a good story to be had in emerging markets, certainly in Japan, and maybe even in Europe. But I think the UK is, I'm not happy with the sort of consensus that the UK is cheap and it's going to outperform. And I think cheap markets tend not to outperform. It's, you know, they are cheap for a reason. Well, let's talk about a, a couple of specific cases, something to do with investment trusts. I mean, this week has been interesting. We've had a couple of announcements recently where we've seen managers of investment trusts leaving. And in one case, we're talking about DGI 9, which is the Digital Infrastructure Trust, where which only came to the market quite recently. And the lead manager there has left, more than one actually has left, and they're now recruiting a new one. And then we've also had something similar at US Solar Fund, where some of the key personnel have departed as well including the CEO and the CIO. It's, that's, these are relatively unusual events in the investment trust uh, sector, are they or are they not, in your experience? They are unusual, but they happen. And the reason it happens is because there's a friction between the management company, triple point in the case of GG9, who sets up uh, the fund and thinks that the managers are just the paid hands. But of course, the managers are the experts, and they're, they're the people that uh, the investors back. And they don't particularly like being taken for granted and probably underpaid. And they said, well, we've got better ideas about how this business should be run than you have. And so they go off and do their own thing. And there's always a bit of that going on. And the friction between management and investment managers, it happens in much of the world. You know, like in the health service, the friction between the bureaucrats and the uh, actual frontline practicing uh, medical people. So what should you do there if you're an investor in one of these trusts? I mean, would you do you say this is a problem that should have been anticipated, or should you just say, well, they'll find somebody else and carry on, or should you be, uh, you know, somewhat alarmed about it? These trusts have, uh, I think, both sold off a little bit as a result of this news. What would you say? In, uh, in, in well, I think Digital Nine has got some very, very good assets, and uh, having made these investments, 
I'd have thought that uh, these investments should perform well, but uh, you know you have to look at the incoming management and see what they're like, and uh, and has the relationship between the management and um, uh, Triple Point is it better than the previous uh, management arrangements? I think it's all too easy just to sell out at a rotten price in a panic, and then to see that actually things stabilise and it's the quality of the underlying business that counts, not the management. Well, on that point, I have to bring up the subject of Home REIT, which is in the business of providing um, social housing, where, again, we've had this attack by a short seller. A Viceroy Research has come along and said that there are a number of things wrong with the business model and indeed with the way that the company is managed. Those shares sold off very sharply. This week, we heard from the board of Home REIT, which came out and said it was you know, the usual adjectives were applied. It's all nonsense and speculation, unsound and so on. But the share price has not recovered, and uh, Viceroy Research came out with a rejoinder to that. I mean, in this case, this trust raised an awful lot of money in a very short period of time, and it's now trading at a huge discount of more than 50%. Would you still say that uh, if the assets are good, you would hang on with this one at this price, if you haven't sold already? I think I would, but I don't own the assets. I mean, this is a fund with a significant social purpose, and there are one or two other companies in the same business in the same area. And what they're doing is providing significant savings to the government and local authorities in the provision of social housing. And the prices they charge are far less than it would cost the local authority to house them in bed and breakfast accommodation. So they're doing a substantial public service in terms of saving money and also to the people they're housing. And it's wonderful that they can make some good returns by so doing. But this whole model is under threat because along comes a hedge fund who's solely interested in trashing a business in order to make a profit. They're not doing this in the public interest. They're doing this to make a quick buck so they can move on and attack the next target. And I find it particularly worrying. You know, I can't believe that the combination of the management and the board are completely stupid and crooked. You know, I think they have done a pretty good job, and I think the arguments they make are pretty good. And I think it's pretty tragic if this whole idea of the private sector you know, helping to solve an important social problem is sort of destroyed by some anonymous hedge funds. Probably came yeah. out of hedge funds too, for all I know. I'm not sure they are in this case, actually, but it's a point well made. Behind this, another issue, of course, which is the peg on which they're hanging their concerns ultimately is about the sustainability of, if you like, of the business models of these social housing trusts. Uh, it applies to Civitas Social Housing and Triple Point as well, where it is the regulators, again, who are saying, you know, the housing associations who actually uh, rent these properties, they may not be good credit risk effectively, <laughs> and they're taking on long-term contracts, which they don't necessarily be able to, to pay. That is true about the model, but it, it's not necessarily the end of the story. That's the well, point. Well, no, because um, I mean, Home have insisted that their rent is right up to date, and they're quite right to say that all the rent is financed by the government and guaranteed by the government. The only question is what happens to the middleman. I think there's one or two of their housing association clients are, are new. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And one is in financial trouble. That doesn't mean to say that the money won't still be paid on behalf of the tenants. And um, the I'm not sure what it is now. It's not the housing corporation. Perhaps it's still the housing corporation. There's a pretty good record of sorting out housing associations who get, get themselves into trouble. Uh, and there's no reason why... This particular, I think it's Circle Housing Association, not to be confused with Circle 33, I hope, has got himself into a, some financial trouble. And I'd have thought that um, the Housing Corporation or whoever it is now will, have, will sort it out and life will continue. So I, I think this ought to be a panic about nothing. And, you know, um, but of course, people think there's no smoke without fire. Well, you know, 
actually quite often there is smoke without fire. Well, that may or may not be true. We'll find out. But looking at what's happened to Civitas Social Housing, which had another attack from a short seller uh, some time ago, they've not managed to convince the market to uh, to mark the shares back up again. They're trading at a big 40% discount or whatever it is. What short sellers want to do also is frighten the regulator, frighten the regulator into overacting and frighten the clients into overreacting. So really, they're, they're targeting not so much the shareholders, they're targeting the regulators to say, oh dear, our reputations are on the line, and they panic, and the result is not only pretty bad news for the trust concerned, but it's a disaster for the whole future of social housing finance by the private sector. Well, absolutely. That is the key point. Obviously, as long as these trusts continue to trade at a huge discount, they're not going to be able to raise any more money until they get back to around power or trading at a premium. And not with anyone else. And this avenue is closed off. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. Just a final point on this. Do you think that because this is obviously uh, has an ostensible and indeed genuine positive social benefit, that there may have been quite a lot of what I call sort of dumb ESG money coming into these trusts. I mean, they have raised a lot of money in a very short period of time without much of a track record. So do you think I that think may have was, contributed to the scale of it? There was some dumb ESG money coming in. I think one or two of the vehicles were overemphasizing the ESG angle and not enough the financial returns. But at home, had their heads screwed on pretty well. They said, we don't have to cut our returns for investors to do substantial social good. So I don't think they were appealing to people just on the ESG grounds. They're saying, look, here is something where you can do social good and make a decent return as well. Okay, so let's move on from that topic and talk about maybe some more positive things. I mentioned your views on, on a couple of things. This week, we've had some results from a couple of the Bailey Gifford Trusts, not Scottish Mortgage, the, you know, the biggest one, or Monks. But uh, we heard from Keystone Positive Change, which was taken over by Bailey Gifford not so long ago. And we've also heard from Bailey Gifford UK and also recently from their European Trust. And all of them have obviously performed pretty badly. Uh, They've underperformed their benchmark because of their very particular uh, growth and uh, private equity style of management. Do you think these trusts are now worth looking at? Do you think that the the Bailey Gifford kind of sell-off, if you like, if I can put it that way, has uh, has run its course? Probably, but I've always had my worries about Keystone Positive Change because I'm superstitious about names. I believe in the contraindicator of certain names. So, for example, Keystone Positive Change, that's got to go wrong, hasn't it? What about uh, EasyJet? I never fly an EasyJet. It's bound to be too complicated. Um, so I don't, I've never liked that name change. I also had suspicions about the Bailey Gifford UK Growth Trust, because the UK is not really a growth market. It's quite yeah. hard to find growth stocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And those that do tend to fizzle out and go nowhere. But uh, they've stuck to their long-term thesis. I think they would accept that they have been too long-termist in some of their thinking, What's happened in an awful lot of these companies is they've got sort of savagely derated, but the underlying progress has been quite good. And in some of the companies which actually have disappointed, Netflix being a good example, you know, the company has taken fairly radical action pretty quickly to resolve its issues, which actually is, I find, quite impressive. And I think some of the companies which got careless with their money because their share price was too high and we're too busy sacrificing shorter-term returns for nebulous longer-term gains, and and now focusing on the bottom line. So I do think that the growth theme will come back, but um, it's got to come back not based on the hype of limitless growth, which makes no money. It's got to come back on the basis that these companies turn themselves into money-making machines, as, of course, um, in previous generations, many companies did, Microsoft being the notable example. It lost money year after year after year, eventually turn itself into a money-making machine. So I think um, the companies that do that and have their eye focused on the bottom line rather than spending it on the metaverse or electronic cars or whatever other wild, or, or, or what was it, uh, 
drone delivery of your groceries. I mean, these are really stupid ideas. And I think if these companies have decided that uh, they're not going to stop wasting their money on stupid diversifications and focus on gaining profits and cash flow from their core business, I think they'll do pretty well. I think, generally speaking, uh, Bailey Gifford have got their heads screwed on pretty well. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've gone, these businesses have gone from being overhyped to perhaps being underhyped. Yes, I mean, in, in many cases, they've gone back to where they were before the kind of post-pandemic surge we saw in all kinds of growth stocks, particular sectors and reopening sectors and so on. Can I also perhaps ask you, you mentioned emerging markets earlier on, but uh, this week, quite notable, there have been some significant share price gains for the Vietnamese investment trusts and also some signs of, well, it's... The Chinese trust investors can't quite make up their mind whether what's happening in China is good news or bad news. It seems to vary from week to week. Quite sharp movements in the share prices and the NAVs, actually, of the Chinese investment trust. Obviously, China is about 40% of the emerging market index. So what do you think about the Vietnamese and the Chinese uh, investment trust? Well, Vietnam was a very strong market last year, and then it fell sharply this year for, for no particularly obvious reason. The underlying story was pretty good, and now it seems to be recovering, which is good. But people still have this nagging doubt about Vietnam. It's a sort of still an authoritarian country, which seems to have embraced the capitalist model. And uh, people have seen that this hasn't worked particularly well in either Russia or China, so they are nervous. And I think that explains the worries about Vietnam. But uh, there's no sign in Vietnam that anything is that's going off the rails. And in fact, Vietnam's biggest geopolitical concern is the Chinese to the north. The only country that China has ever invaded in the last hundred years or so was that disastrous invasion of Vietnam in the 1970s. So you know, the Chinese are not quite so belligerent as people like to think. But uh, I don't see Vietnam changing very much. So I think that the outlook of Vietnam is pretty good. But China, I remain pretty worried about China. I don't think that they are going to invade anyone. I don't think their history says they're great users of force. But they're in a blind alley. It's not just that their policy of COVID lockdown is is that they put a huge amount of credibility in vaccines, which at best don't work at all, and at worst actually make you more susceptible to dying of COVID. Um, So they can't turn around and say, you know what, our vaccines aren't any good, so we'll buy the uh, the Western ones instead. That's an awfully big jump. So I don't think China's out of the woods by any manner of means yet. I mean, if you're long-termist enough, maybe it'll be okay, but it's not a country I would invest in. And I'm quite happy to see the emerging market funds either underweight it or avoid it. And, and in terms of emerging markets generally, I mean, do you own any of the sort of general emerging market investment trusts? Well, I like the JP Morgan Fund, which has been a consistent good performer in the long term. doesn't stray too far from the benchmark, but, but adds a bit of value all along the way and has a few interesting businesses as well. Mobius has done a really good job. It's a small trust, but they've been the best performer. And the others have fizzled. The move by Genesis to Fidelity has been an absolute disaster. And frankly, I wish that the Fidelity directors would go back to Genesis and say, please take the trust back again. We made a mistake, which I really think they ought to do. That would be a first in the investment trust sector, I think. Well, well, it would be a first. Yeah, great. You know, as investors, we often have to make mistakes. You know, so uh, we get fed up with shares, we sell them, then we realize it was a mistake, so we buy them back. Or we buy things and we realize it was a mistake, and so we um, sell them again. Well, you know, directors should be just the same. If you made a mistake, you know, go back. Get the old contract back if you can. I'm not sure Genesis will take it, frankly, but um, they ought to at least ask them. My next question is one I put my hard hat on for this one. I was just looking through the list of best performers uh, and where the discounts have been narrowing quite sharply. And, uh, well, right near the top of the list is Chrysalis and Shihalian, these two early growth capital investment trusts. 
Last time, I think you weren't very polite about Chrysalis, but would you agree that maybe there is a, a price for everything? They produced an update the other day, and the discount is still very wide. It's still about 50%. But um, do you think they will be able to shake off, if you like, the legacy of that uh, very unfortunate performance fee episode? To like them, I'd have to look into their uh, portfolio and see a business that I really liked and thought was really undervalued and going somewhere. And I don't see that in Chrysalis. So uh, I fear it might be just a, a dead cat bounce. But the one I would point to actually more is a fund which actually looks in some ways quite similar, which was um, a literacy capital, you know, founded by the person who made a huge success of buying out and building up capita, basically investing in, in smaller private equity in the UK. And in two difficult years, he's multiplied investors' money, was it threefold? So I think you know there's a marked contrast between the extraordinary success of literacy, which I, I hope continues. You know, maybe it's a bit too good to be true, and the absolute disaster of Chrysalis. But in between, there are a lot of private equity funds which have continued to do well in NAV terms this year, yet the share prices go to wider and wider discount. Investors just simply won't believe that these funds are continue to do well. And um, I think the reality is that actually they are doing pretty well. Private equity remains a very attractive area, but I think that uh, you should steer clear of the ones which would be massive problems like Chrysalis. It's just like in the after 2009, the biggest sufferer was, I think, uh, Candover. And it was tempting to buy that on a massive discount for a turnaround. But you know what? It never turned around. One thing after another just went wrong, and it ended up being liquidated at a knockdown price. My final question to you, Max, is going to be about the uh, commercial property sector. This is the one which, again, has suffered across the board, effectively, uh, or almost across the board this year, because of rising bond yields and other factors. Uh, did well in the first half of the year, but has since uh, sold off quite sharply. Just remind us the reasons why you might own a commercial property trust, and uh, tell us whether you think this is an opportunity as well as a short-term uh, bit of pain. Well, it seems that uh, the sell-off of the property, which has been dramatic, has been entirely related to the rise in interest rates. I think uh, I saw some comment pointing out that Tritax UK has gone from a 30% premium to NAV to a 40% discount in the space of a year. I don't think the business prospects have deteriorated nearly enough to justify that. There are some issues. Obviously, higher interest rates mean lower valuations across the market. And also, there's been a growing disparity in the property market between those companies which have got quality office space and, and those which haven't. I think uh, the difference in yields between prime and secondary has been widening. But it does seem that investors have overreacted. And I, I noticed that my sort of favourite barometer, TR Property, has seen its share price steadily recovering in recent weeks. And I think it's a very good chance that will continue. So what you'll probably see is the news deteriorating in terms of prices and rents and vacancies, but actually the share price is steadily recovering. But you have to pick the right ones. And I think that the yesterday's favourites, which were the logistics warehouse companies and the industrial property companies, were probably not going to do quite so well in the next cycle as they did in the last cycle. It doesn't say much for the uh, fated theory of efficient markets, does it, that you can go from a 30% premium to a 40% uh, discount in a matter of months with admittedly you know, one macro change. But it doesn't particularly uh, suggest that efficient mm. markets theory is, uh, is correct. And that in turn implies there must be some good opportunities for wise old birds like you. Well, yes. But uh, one thing that's been a surprise is that uh, um, Tritax is quite focused on the internet because it's deliveries for people like Amazon. But one thing that's been quite a surprise in last year is how quickly the market has swung back away from online delivery. And uh, it's not just people 
returning to shops and offices after the pandemic. It's gone a bit further than that. The best anecdote I heard recently about retailing was from Tim Waterston, who said that uh, all the booksellers gave up because e-books rose to being 25% of the market. And people thought that was, they were going to 35%, even 50%. But actually, the fashion for e-books has died, and now they're back to 60% of the market. That people have discovered, have rediscovered that, that actually physical shopping, whether it's buying books or clothes or going and having a social and meeting your colleagues and friends in the office is actually something they want to do. Um, another business which has been struggling is Just Eat. You know, you know people have decided actually you know, ordering a takeaway to be delivered to your door, doorstep from a restaurant is actually not a great way to spend your evening. They'd rather go to the restaurant and enjoy themselves there. So I think there's been a bit too much sort of new tech hype and we're now seeing a bit of a backlash and that's affecting the property companies which have done so well on the back of it such as Tritex. Indeed and the, the bigger your exposure to that sector the, the more you've been punished yeah. I think the share price of Tritex has now come back below the price at which I sold it a few years ago so <laughs> three years ago. So. You've been vindicated at last absolutely. <laughs> vindicated at last. Exactly. <laughs> Before we go, then, you're one of our contributors who actually can talk about what they're doing rather than, you know, it's difficult if you're engaged in professional fund management and you've been released from those shackles, shall we say. Have you been doing anything, uh, making major changes? I think I know the answer to this one, but uh, if so, what have you been doing? Not many. I have to say, I'm giving up on my gold fund. This is the sort of, I won't say the dog that didn't bark, but this should have been a great investment in the last few years, and it's been pretty ruddy dismal, frankly. So I think it's time to throw in the towel. But you know what? I suspect I'll be wrong. In a couple of years, I'll be buying it back at a higher price. But uh, Well, you may indeed. Yeah, well, we've all got a few things. We're past the stage where we're putting money into investments. Net-net, we're sort of just dribbling a bit of money out, income here, a little bit of capital there. So so I'm not a net investor anymore. You know, once... But time to spend some of it. Exactly. Um, Save the country as well at the same time, yeah. Well, not necessarily this country, other countries are spending it on things like travel. We call all travel rather more. So um, I'm not a net uh, investor, but certainly I've given up on gold. I'm holding on to the other investments. There's some areas which have done extraordinarily well in the last couple of years. I don't really understand it. I think uh, my polar insurance fund has been a huge winner. Why it's been such a winner is because it's avoided UK insurance companies. It just invests in almost entirely into the US insurance industry. And that's been the place to be. And that's actually gives a good uh, indicator of why the UK has underperformed. So many UK businesses, insurance, banks, energy companies are so under the cost for um, successive governments that really you don't want to be in the UK, you want to be overseas. And I think it's quite likely that a number of other UK large cap businesses follow the lead of BHP and emigrate. BHP has gone to Australia. And I think actually any substantial company in the UK seeing the way the politics is going in this country, ought to think about moving overseas. I bet Unilever's regretting not moving to Holland, for example. Well, on that cheery note, uh, we'll say thank you, Max, for your always interesting and entertaining uh, contribution to the podcast. Thank you so much. And, uh, well, we look forward to speaking to you again soon, maybe in a few weeks' time, and we'll uh, we'll see how it's panning out, see if it's panning out the way you thought or whether it's uh, panning out more the way I think. If the former, certainly. If the latter, I might be busy. <laughs> You know, I'll be pestering you in that case. Don't worry. I'll be pestering you to do a bit of crowing or vice versa. You know, I could become groveling to you instead and say, God, how wise you were, how right you were. So thank you, Max. That was Max King, former fund manager at Investec Asset Management, now a well-known and always interesting and even sometimes polemical writer about investment trust for Money Week and others. So now recapping on some of the results. There have been a lot of results this week, so I'm not going to 
uh, list them all. You can find them as always via the Moneymakers website if you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers circle. This week we have heard a number of results in both the equity investment trust sector and in the alternative asset sector. So just quickly running through some of those names without going into too much detail. In the equity investment trust sector, we've heard from uh, Keystone Positive Change and Bailey Gifford UK Growth, both Bailey Gifford Trusts, Aberdeen Equity Income, CT UK Capital and Income, Shah's Income, Odyssean Fidelity China Special Situations and JP Morgan European Growth and Income. Of those, most, uh, I have to report, made a total return, which was somewhat less than their benchmark. Most of them were uh, down a little, in some cases rather more. Keystone Positive Change was down a uh, remarkable 35% against the 3.7% decline in the MSCI All Countries World Index. Exceptions, though, to that generalization was uh, Edition Investment Trust, which uh, reported in its uh, interims NAV total return of minus 8.7%, which was ahead of its benchmark, minus 18.5%. And then uh, looking at some of the alternative assets, we've had updates from JLEN Environmental Assets, Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets. The supported NAV was up sharply, though that was mainly due to uh, changes in the sterling dollar exchange rate. Residential Secure Income, Industrials REIT, Triple Point Energy Transition, and Atrato on-site energy. In other news, we had the exchange of comments by Home REIT, the board, and Viceroy Research, the short seller, which has issued a series of allegations about the company's business model and uh, reported NAVs. Those shares were down again this week, despite that rebuttal by the board. Uh, Chrysalis has proposed a new performance fee structure, less generous than the one which paid out huge amounts last year. And that saw some modest improvement in the rating of that one, though it still trades at a very large discount of around 50%. And as I mentioned, Digital 9 Infrastructure is now prioritising the recruitment of a new head of digital infrastructure following the departures of two of its managers recently. Well, two uh, key important personnel at the, in the management uh, advisor to the US Solar Fund also uh, leaving that company uh, following the decision by the trust to conduct a strategic review. The board has said it's going to complete a strategic review of the future of US solar, completed by the first quarter next year. And finally, we can say that Life Science REIT has completed its move from AIM to the main market. If you're interested in the Moneymakers Circle, this week we have a new profile, as well as uh, the usual regular contributors, including an interesting piece by Edward Chancellor, about the goings-on in the cryptocurrency market. And the profile this week is of Pantheon International, the private equity investment trust. And as mentioned earlier, there was the full Q&A last week with Carlos Hardenberg, lead manager of the Mobius Investment Trust. And this week, you can, you can hear the full version of my long conversation with Ben Rogoff, the manager of Polar Capital Technology. Ben is a very experienced manager in the technology sector. And uh, when I caught up with him this week, we exchanged a lot of views. He covered a, a lot of issues, including the market environment, whether it's still favourable or unfavourable to technology stocks. And we ran through some of the big name tech stocks, which have had divergent fortunes this year, including Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, uh, or Meta as it now is. 
as well as some other sectors where he has interesting comments to make. So if you're interested in that, the full version is on the website. But uh, in this extract I'm about to share with you now, uh, we talked mainly about what's happening to a couple of the larger big tech stocks. So I was delighted to catch up with Ben Rogoff, the lead manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust. He has been uh, the lead manager of that trust since uh, 2006 and has been working in the technology space for many, many years, becoming a senior figure in the in the investment trust sector and also in this particular space. Polar Capital Technology uh, has a market capitalization of around $2.7 at today's prices, making it the largest in the technology subsector. So, Ben, if I can kick off, let's dive straight into where we are. You had a remarkable uh, period in 2021 and 2020 in particular, uh, but this year has been a big sell-off in technology stocks and indeed in uh, stock markets generally. I guess I should start by saying that since 2012, I looked you up this morning, the 10-year share price total return is still somewhere in excess of 460%, which uh, on my calculation works out at about uh, still somewhere north of 30% per annum. So that's a pretty impressive return. It was a lot greater at its peak. It's come down a bit since then, but still very impressive. So the question is, what are we seeing going on in the market now? Your shares are down some in the region of 20% this year, 25% this year. What's going on as far as you're concerned in terms of uh, the share price and the market capitalization of your trust? Uh, well, thanks before I tackle the question uh, for having me on. Well, the punchline is obviously we're in a, a, a different market environment. We, we've obviously seen a very profound change from central banks across the world. One of the most synchronized, if not the most synchronized tightening cycle that anyone alive has seen. And certainly I have in my working uh, time. It's obviously had a, a very big impact on risk assets including equities. And really, you can you know, sort of chart the peak in growth and tech back to the Fed pivot. And the rest is really the market grappling with a, a very different environment, or at least seemingly a very different environment for risk assets and trying to work out what the right price for those risk assets is. On top of that, of course, you've, you've also had the impact to technology companies associated with reopening, or at least the worst of COVID being hopefully behind us. And so as the world has returned to normal, so I suppose money has flowed back away from longer duration and growth tech assets, uh, not just because of higher discount rates, but also because as the world normalizes, the technology sector isn't the only story in town. But do you think because you had such a strong period before, would it be fair to say that you've kind of reverted back to a more normal level of growth if you look at it in the, over the longer term? Or is this something that could get worse before it gets better? Well, it's hard to say. I'm not sure that central bankers know what, what comes next. We kind of hope that they do. Um, it's always good to know or feel that the person with the wheel knows what direction the vehicle is traveling or what speed it's traveling at. But uh, it's not 100% clear that they are in control of this. But look, I think what's happened is that the tech sector had an incredible decade and the pandemic period was very much the icing on top of what had been a very rich cake for some time. And what had driven that previous period, that earlier period wasn't a pandemic pull forward as we saw over 2020-2021 rather it was you know a combination of secular drivers that kind of coalesced to create a very fertile environment for tech spending and we saw really the internet deliver on that 1990s promise with the smartphone as the conduit for wholesale change and I, I really don't think that we're going to be reversing any of that time any suit you know, I really don't think we're going to see cash return to the economy. I don't think Gen Z is going to be picking up, I don't know, old-fashioned board games in order to amuse themselves. I think that, you know, the changes that have driven the forces behind technology outperformance prior to COVID remain very much intact. 
I think, however, more recently, we had hoped that, and I don't think we were alone in this hope, that, that some of the societal and behavioural changes that we saw during COVID would elevate technology penetration to a new and permanent level. And I think in some cases that has been true. So, for example, in cloud computing, where the world rushed to cloud as the infrastructure of choice in order to keep things spinning during a very uncertain time with offices and, and people at home. And then in other areas like e-commerce, we've seen really, as you say, a, a normalization of behavior where Black Friday spending just this today uh, data that was released shows a sort of normalizing process because people are not just online now, they're also back in stores as traffic levels around the local shopping centre near where I live a test over the weekend. So I think in the end, the experience of COVID and what happens next depends very heavily on how important that pandemic period proved for growth. If you're cloud, the trends there had been intact for you know years before, and we suspect will endure well beyond this COVID period. But in other areas, uh, things like NFTs and crypto, if we get around to talking about that, that would be great. I'm not sure that one can be quite so sanguine. Indeed not. I think we can all perhaps agree with that. That, in retrospect, looks all very speculative as opposed to the kind of more fundamental uh, difference between this uh, particular sell-off and the one we had in 1999 when uh, most of the companies didn't have any earnings at all. So it was slightly different back then. That brings me on to the question, well, interest rates going up, inflation is high, the, the central bank's trying to kill that inflation. Uh, we don't know when or if they're going to uh, pause in that process, at least we don't today. But what's happening if we go into a recession, which many people feel we may be on the verge of, if not already in globally, rather than just in the UK, uh, what's the impact going to be on earnings of technology companies? Obviously, it will vary by sector by sector. But overall, what do you think will be happening? Are we going to see downgrades next year in the earnings of uh, tech stocks? Well, I think if recession is something that ultimately happens, then there is still downside risk to earnings numbers. And I think so far we've, we've begun to see that process. I think it's been more complicated, the downward revision process, because of inflation. And I think it's very easy for people to forget that economists deal in, in real things, but companies report nominal earnings. And so, um, you know, some of the Black Friday data actually is, looks stronger than perhaps it really is because of the, I suppose, beneficial impact of inflation in those baskets. So what happens next for earnings? Difficult to say. The bond market seems to suggest there's a pretty reasonable chance of a U.S. recession. I think that recently Goldman Sachs suggested that they would peg the chance of a U.S. recession at something like one third. Again, it's somewhat beyond my remit stroke pay grade to, to really call these things, but I think it's fair to say that previous downturns have seen more significant downward earnings revisions that we've seen thus far. So there's definitely downside risk to numbers. When we're thinking about our stocks and trying to model them for next year and beyond, we're definitely taking a haircut to the numbers on the screen. But so far, the weakness really has been, and I'm talking now about the technology market weakness that we've seen, has been really more to do with valuations. Valuations that started, certainly prior to the Fed pivot, were, were trading at you know, unusually or elevated levels. Uh, something we called out in fact sheets and our communication with investors. In fact, one of the reasons why we've been holding cash in the portfolio, the idea of the primacy of technology and the certainty of disruption. And, you know, some of those things rhymed a little with the late 90s. Some of the excitement around crypto and NFTs, private companies, uh, SPACs, you know, some of that excess, late cycle excess did take us back a few years. And so really the story since the Fed pivot, since the change in Fed policy, which really has um, gone on to characterise markets since, 
know, the good news is that most of that excess or much of that excess has already been taken out of markets. And today we look at tech stocks. You know, well, we look at the S&P trading at sort of average levels on a five to 10 year view. We look at the tech stocks on an, on an earnings basis. Again, not looking dissimilar to where they've traded over time on a five to 10 year. And when you look at some of the more um, spicy names within tech, the stocks that um, people were very happy to pay 40 times sales for last year, that's all but gone. And in fact, one of the stats that um, is, is quite an exciting one um, was that I think a year ago, uh, there were something like 25 companies, software companies trading more than 20 times forward sales, um, and now there are none. So the valuation reset feels to us like it's largely complete, but we still may have downside risk associated with earnings. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.